you think about discrete rooms and you assign specific functionalities to those rooms. That's how we come up with concepts like the bedroom. Well, the bedroom is the place where you sleep. The kitchen, the kitchen is the place where you work, you know, the living room, you know, like that's how we create rooms. And that's totally good and dandy in a, in a world where you have unlimited resources, meaning if you can have, if you can expand your space to get all these rooms so you can have all these activities, uh, that's fine. But the moment the world starts urbanizing at a crazy speed, the moment, you know, we have more and more people living in cities, you cannot afford anymore uh, unless you're rich to, to basically expand your footprint. So now what you have to do is you have to take the footprint that you have and make it work harder for you. And that's the whole paradigm change. And of course, that's been decades in the making. But in the last you know, 10, 20 years, we've seen more and more pressure in our cities. And at the end of the day, it's about having technology, having uh, architecture, having a space adapt to us. Because at the end of the day, if I have a very big apartment with all these rooms, I can go from room to room. If I don't have, if I only have a space for one room, then I need to make that room transform around my activities and around what we do. And that's kind of how all of this was, was born. Welcome to this week's release of the Real Market Talks podcast. In this episode, Asir Larea shares how he started his company, Ori, which creates architectural furniture concepts for flexible living. Ori has been responding to the growth of urban living by applying sophisticated engineering and design to maximizing living in smaller spaces. In addition to diving into Ori and the products they develop, Asir talks about his time at MIT and how he combined his background in mechanical engineering with the cross-disciplinary approach to problem-solving at the Media Lab. Ori is committed to providing innovative solutions to the emerging challenges of growing cities, limited space, and rising cost of living. They are currently delivering products across North America and continue to expand their reach. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode and the show in general. Feel free to leave a rating wherever you get your podcast or reach out to me at realmarkettalks at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's hear more about Ori. All right. Well, Hasier, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to talk with me here and share more about your company, which is super interesting. And I can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Keith. All right. So just to get started, why don't you just give a quick introduction to yourself and tell us a little bit about your company? So my name is Asier Larrea, tough name, uh, for, because I'm from the Basque region uh, of Spain originally. Uh, I came to, to the U.S. many years ago uh, to MIT in Boston uh, as I was going through my you know, mechanical engineering degrees. And, you know, after many years of research at MIT, my, my team and I decided to launch a company. Uh, it's called Ori. Ori comes from origami, from the Japanese. 
uh, origami means you know ori means to fold and gami means paper so in our case it's about folding but not paper folding space and thinking about space in a very innovative and and creative way all right that's great so why don't you talk a little bit about what you were doing before you started at MIT and what got you interested in pursuing that path? Yeah, so if we go back to even, uh, you know, before MIT, I'm one of those engineers that had a lot of uh, fundamental doubts between engineering and architecture. You know, do I go into engineering? Do I go into architecture? Arch architecture tends to be more vocational, meaning the exits from architecture tend to be a bit more narrow. Uh, so a lot of young people end up in engineering because they don't know what they want. Uh, so it's a bit broader. Uh, that's kind of the path I took. But then as I was going through my master's in mechanical engineering, uh, I got this opportunity, uh, opportunity of a lifetime, which was to, to come to MIT for six months to do my, my thesis. Uh, that was going to be six months of research uh, at MIT that turned into many years uh, as I was having so much fun. But the interesting, you know, homecoming there was that uh, I met an architect, uh, Professor Kent Larson, who is one of these visionaries around the future of cities. Uh, and together we started working on the idea of actually combining the two disciplines, how we could take, you know, the best of architecture, combine it with the best of mechanical engineering and robotics and start creating ideas uh, to redesign and rethink uh, the spaces of the future. Can you talk a little bit about what the environment was like learning and working at MIT? Where were you drawing inspiration from and what was that process like? Yeah, so MIT is already a very special place, uh, but the MIT Media Lab, which is where I was for quite a few years, it's, it's even more special. Uh, I don't know if the word is special or rogue or just like different. Uh, because the concept of this place, the MIT Media Lab, is that you put all these different you know, people from very different backgrounds, uh, from engineering to architecture, computer science, uh, medicine, uh, magic. Literally, there's been magicians as researchers <laughs> at the lab. You put all these people working together, and the idea is that sometimes, or in many cases, best ideas come in a very serendipitous way. Uh, you know, accidentally on purpose, when you put people from almost like from very different backgrounds in a very anti-disciplinary approach. So that's the context in which I started working there. And, and the first thing, like, which was counterintuitive is that I'm a mechanical engineer and I was put in charge of an architecture project. Uh, and that's an example of the Media Lab ethos. You're going to put engineers working on houses while architects works on work on cars. Or you're going to put computer scientists working on instruments why musicians try to program new ideas and new concepts. So that's, that's a little bit of the ethos there. And that's where a lot of the inspiration came from this anti-disciplinary approach. And then the focus area of this research group who was led and is still led by Professor Ken Larson uh, is that it's called city science. And what city science means is the future of cities and the science of cities. How can we make them better? Uh, and how can we use technology to think about the way we build our homes, the way we transport ourselves to our cities, the way we generate energy, food. So that's the big context in which we started all our work and the inspiration happened to actually start working on architecture and small spaces specifically. And it sounds like you already had somewhat of an interest in the architectural disciplines 
it was something that you were thinking about when you were starting your career early on in your studies as a mechanical engineer. But when you started working at the MIT Media Lab, it sounds like you connected with people who were able to just take that interest and help you expand on that. Yeah, so, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, The first is that, first, I got to understand the challenge. And second, we, uh, we got to understand an approach to solve that challenge. So let's go one at a time. The challenge, it was really related to the future of cities and the fact that there are, I would say, two problems uh, that cities are facing. One is sustainability and the fact that, for example, buildings are 40% of carbon emissions. So how can we think about buildings in a more efficient way and the way we live in a more efficient way? And secondly, uh, affordability or lack of affordability. When you think about cities across the globe, uh, the challenge of affordability is a big one. You know, people cannot afford to live uh, in these cities. So we started thinking first about those problems. And then we started thinking about, okay, how can we tackle those two problems? And we started thinking about the concept of space efficiency. And the reason space efficiency as a concept is so important is because if you can prove to people that they don't need as much space as they think they need, now you are using less materials, which is less emissions. You're using less heating and cooling, which is less emissions. And you are actually allowing people to live with a smaller rent check or a smaller mortgage because all of those things are proportional to the amount of square footage that you need. So that's kind of where inspiration happened. And then, of course, we looked at the past uh, of space efficiency. And I'm sure you are familiar with old concepts of space efficiency like the Murphy bed. You know, the famous, you know, foldable bed that many of our grandparents had in their homes. And the challenge with a lot of these solutions is that they are basically stuck in the 20th century. Uh, When you think about the Murphy bed specifically, which was invented by Mr. Murphy, uh, William Murphy, uh, it was actually invented only three years after the first mass-produced car, the Model T by Ford. Now, when you think about that comparison and you think about cars specifically and how they have evolved in the last 100 plus years, and now you compare that with how space efficiency has evolved, still the same, still the same manual, cumbersome, you know, boring solutions that allowed us to kind of see a path, you know, see a path to bring robotics, bring mechanical engineering, redefine space efficiency and try to tackle those two problems of sustainability and affordability by making smaller spaces uh, much better. Was approaching and trying to solve this problem of space something that you were immediately drawn to kind of coming into the program? Or was this something that you discovered you really wanted to tackle once you were there? So I discovered this as I, as I got to be part of this research group, uh, City Science, because I, I kind of fell in love with the concept of cities. And the reason I fell in love is because as you start reading about the the history of humankind and you start thinking about social progress, economic progress, innovation, you realize that a lot of that progress or most of that progress is closely tied to cities. And that's because as you get more and more humans, you know, in close quarters, uh, you know, uh, you know, density sparks innovation, you know, and collisions of of people, you know, when I mean collisions, you know, I mean uh, of ideas, like spark innovation, spark progress. So I got really kind of excited about that. But then I realized that with everything you fall in love with, you also have to fall in love with the problems that that it carries. And one, some of those problems, at least I mentioned two, 
were the fact that we had to think about how to build those cities in a sustainable way, but also we had to build those cities in a way that they are affordable to the very people that those cities need to remain globally competitive, you know, the creative class, the young professionals. So it was kind of this, this concept of, again, falling in love with cities and then realizing that in order to make cities better, uh, to take advantage of the good things of cities, we also have to, you know, tackle the challenges and the problems. And did you have any aha moments, I might call them, during that process where you stumbled across something and you felt like this is, this is, these ideas are gelling in, um, forming in a certain way where I feel like I, I have a potential solution here to these challenges that we're dealing with, or was it more iterative and drawn out and you're just kind of chipping away at the problem until you progress to where you, you, you felt like you had a, a better solution? Yeah. I mean, definitely iterative in the sense that, you know, we build a ton of prototypes, a ton of concepts. And what you realize is that you learn more in five minutes with a physical prototype than five months of discussions and brainstorms on a whiteboard. So we took that concept very seriously and we just started building things. One of the things that we did, and this was a video that went pretty viral on YouTube, it was called the City Home uh, 200 Square Feet. Uh, and you can still find this on YouTube. It was a tiny apartment, 200 square feet, and we built that as a provocation of basically showing how like most people would assume if you tell them to live in 200 square feet or 20 square meters, they would assume, uh, they would react in a way that you're crazy, it's impossible, I don't want to live in a tiny shoebox prison cell. But we built this prototype where we build you know, these robotic solutions inside the apartment where you know you could start changing the conversation and all of a sudden you could have a 200 square feet bedroom and a 200 square feet bedroom is a perfectly sized bedroom but that 200 square feet bedroom would turn into a 200 square feet home office which is a really luxurious home office and then the 200 square feet home office would actually turn into a dining room 200 square feet dining room who has a dining room these days well you could have it in a 200 square feet apartment as long as the space transforms for you a 200 square feet bathroom. At that point, you have, that's a five-star hotel bathroom. So we, we kind of changed the conversation there uh, with these prototypes and these solutions and started showing that if a space starts adapting to us and our activities, you can actually live large in a smaller footprint. And we did that in a very iterative fashion until at some point after all these prototypes, we realized that the next step was not more research or more writing theses. The next step was to start commercializing those ideas. So that's why after five years, we, we decided to spin out uh, this research into, into a company. And what did that transition look like? What was the process of taking that from the engineering, um, more of an academic environment, but still engineering based, and then bringing that out into a prototype model where you were taking it to market? Yeah, so, I mean, there were a ton of learnings in that process, and we're lucky enough to, to be supported by the, the MIT Entrepreneurship Center, which is a great resource uh, that a lot of MIT students use to actually take ideas that are raw and are in the laboratory and bring them to, to market. One of the first things we learned is that it's very different to, when you're in a research environment, you're thinking about building one of your solution that works once because you're showing a concept. Uh, you're showing the future, but it doesn't have to work always. It just has to work once and it has to be built you know, one time. The moment you start thinking about a company, now you have to start thinking about a completely different challenge, which is how do you build many 
and how do you make them work all the time. So that was a big kind of paradigm uh, shift for us. The second paradigm shift was that, uh, and a lot of you know engineers are not comfortable with this, but you have to be in your, if you're launching a company, and that is you have to go out there and talk to people. So I will never, I will never forget uh, first month in this entrepreneurship center uh, as we were trying to spin out the company, and they were like, for the next month, you're gonna leave your products uh, in a corner, uh, in a drawer if they fit, uh, and you're just gonna go out there and talk to people. And that's how my team and I, our founding team, we went out there. We started talking to, I would say, 200 people living in the studios in the Boston area, which is where we started the company. And that's when we, it, it was fascinating because you started understanding truly the problems of a studio living, the problem of small spaces. And then what we did is we went back to the drawing board, we went back to our technologies, and we started repackaging them in a way that could very closely uh, solve those problems. And then we also had to think about the business because, uh, you know, an idea or a product is as good as its business model. So then we had to realize that, yes, we are designing these solutions for people living in small spaces, but then we need to think about the people that own uh, these spaces, the real estate developers, in this case, the multifamily real estate developers that own these buildings. And we had to think about what is the value proposition for them. So it became a bit of a multidimensional, you know, problem solving Rubik's Cube that we, we had to go through. But, but again, it was a very exciting part of the journey when you're just starting uh, out of research and becoming a So company. it sounds like you had some prototypes and then based on that user feedback, you started taking those and um, just further realizing them and, and creating products that, to start really solving the problems that people were dealing with day to day. Yeah, so, I mean, let me give you an example of that. So as we did this, all this research, we found out that people living in studios were complaining about the same three things systematically. And if you've lived in a studio, you might uh, relate to this, but they were uh, lack of separation of a space, which is the main reason why couples don't like studios, because it's only one space, so you cannot have two activities happening at the same time. Then lack of a proper living area, and that's the idea that, you know, a studio usually feels like a, like a hotel room. You know, your bed is in the middle and your bed dominates the space, meaning it feels like a bedroom. It doesn't feel like a living room. It doesn't feel like a home office. You want to have friends over. It doesn't really work. And number three, lack of storage. Uh, people still have a lot of physical things. So we took that and the, first, the very first solution that we developed was a robotic wall system that could move across the apartment to separate the space in, in two spaces, in you know, big, one big space, two smaller spaces. So it would basically, again, create separation. It would hide your bed in a way that it could create a complete living room without a bedroom, uh, without a bed anywhere. And then it would bring you a ton of storage. Uh, and this would be this machine for living uh, in some way. So that's how we came up with that idea. But the first thing we did, uh, kind of tied to your question, was we found an apartment in the seaport in Boston we rented it, we put it on Airbnb, and for the first uh, you know year, we just had people staying there. You know, we had more than a hundred people. We got uh, you know young couples, uh, seniors, you know, like from uh, twenty-year-olds to eighty-year-olds, and we started iterating and we started learning about what people liked, what people disliked, how we had to think about safety features, reliability, and all of that again went through a through a very iterative uh, cycle that started by putting a system in an apartment, putting it on Airbnb, and just getting feedback. That's great. And 
in previous speaking engagements that I've seen you in, one of the things that was really interesting, and I was hoping you could speak more to this uh, here as well, is you talked about when you were studying the archetypes of space throughout history and living, that there were there was just not much transformation in how those spaces were built, organized, and used. Um, and yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that and what your research looked like when you were studying that issue? Yeah, absolutely. So I used to joke a lot about this, and it used to be the first slide in all my presentations, which was basically a comparison between two floor plans. Uh, so I had these two floor plans of apartments that looked almost identical uh, when it comes to the walls and the separations. And the, and the fun fact was that one of them was actually my, my parents' uh, home uh, in Spain, and the other one belonged to a Roman Empire captain. And the Roman Empire was there many, many, many years ago, 2000 years ago. So that showed you kind of how much when it comes to interior architecture and design, the spaces have not evolved in 2000 years. And that's how we thought uh, for many years about uh, space design, meaning create rooms and you assign specific functionalities to those rooms. That's how we come up with concepts like the bedroom. Well, the bedroom is the place where you sleep. The kitchen, the kitchen is the place where you work, you know, the living room, you know, like that's how we create rooms. And that's totally good and dandy in a, in a world where you have unlimited resources, meaning if you can have, if you can expand your space to get all these rooms so you can have all these activities, uh, that's fine. But the moment the world starts urbanizing at a crazy speed, the moment, you know, we have more and more people living in cities, you cannot afford anymore uh, unless you're rich. To, to basically expand your footprint. So now what you have to do is you have to take the footprint that you have and make it work harder for you. And that's the whole paradigm change. And of course, that's been decades in the making, but in the last you know, 10, 20 years, we've seen more and more pressure in our cities. And at the end of the day, it's about having technology, having uh, architecture, having a space adapt to us. Because at the end of the day, if I have a very big apartment with all these rooms, I can go from room to room. If I don't have, if I only have a space for one room, then I need to make that room transform around my activities and around what we do. And that's kind of how all of this was, was born. Yeah, that's such an interesting observation and study that you did. And especially between such a, a large span in time with such little change. So it definitely seems like this is a timely exercise that you guys are doing and trying to provide these solutions. So I think that's a great overview of how the company came to be and the idea and the concept for it. So can you talk about now that you're, you've become more established, um, what Ori is doing, what your product lines look like, and you know maybe dive into a little bit more about the types of clients that you're working with and how you're trying to solve this problem for them? Absolutely. So I like to say in summary that we are in the business of small spaces. Uh, and we're in the business of making a smaller spaces feel much larger than they are. Now, in order to accomplish that, you need a technology toolkit. And these are all the solutions that you can find at orreliving.com, which it's always easier to see videos than to explain in words. But these are solutions like, for example, beds that at the press of a button or Alexa, your voice, can drop from the ceiling and turn a living room into a bedroom or a closet that you press a button, it expands and it gives you the walk-in closet experience when you need it, or it makes that walk-in closet disappear when you don't need it. So it's all about using a square footage in the smartest way possible. 
And of course, that ties us to the real estate industry, which is the business of square footage. Uh, so what we do is, as we work in small spaces, and most of these smaller spaces, studios, tend to be rentals, then we work with that developer that is building, you know, a multifamily building and is building studios in that building. Now, as we work with a developer, we realize that at the end of the day, the name of the game is to rent apartments as fast as you can and at the highest price per square foot as you can. So our business is to help developers do that. And helping developers do that is actually much more than just giving developers, uh, you know, tech-enabled, you know, architectural piece. That is part of it. And we do help developers design these apartments. And, and we, are, of course, give developers these technologies. But then we also have to maintain these technologies through the years, almost the same way you would maintain an elevator. Uh, you know, these are moving systems, so you want to maintain it through the years, through service contracts. You also have to help developers lease those apartments. This is a new type of apartment. You know, we like to call it an expandable studio or an expandable apartment. So the way you market an apartment like that is different to the way you market your typical studio, one bedroom and two bedroom apartment in a multifamily building. So what we do is we help developers through marketing, through our own kind of uh, social presence, through our own marketing campaigns. We help developers find consumers, residents that want to live in those apartments. So that's the business at the end of the day. How do we help developers? create a better pro forma for their building by making studios be a new or Ori studios be a new category or typology of apartment. So when do you like to start working with the developers or when do they usually approach you? When is it most efficient for you to get involved in this process if you're going to be providing these furniture solutions for them? I like to say that the sooner the better. Uh, it doesn't mean that we cannot, you know, integrate at the very end of the process, meaning uh, we just delivered a project in Manhattan, in New York City, where from, you know, conversation with the developer to installation, six weeks uh, happened, which means that the developer came to us as they were about to open the building and we could still do a very exciting implementation. But the sooner you get involved, the more of an impact you can make on the pro forma of a building. And the, the reason is simple. At the end of the day, if you can start designing uh, your apartments with these solutions in mind, that means that you can shrink your apartments. And if you can shrink your apartments while still making them feel bigger and actually feel like if they were twice as big, you can fit more apartments per building. And all of a sudden, you know, the pro forma of the building starts becoming so much more exciting because if you can fit more units per floor, you know, you could actually generate a ton of affordability uh, for tenants while still increasing your price per square foot. I, I always like to refer to one of my favorite uh, projects uh, when it comes to planning early. And that is a project we designed and, and built in Fort Worth, Texas, which is probably the last place where you, where you would imagine some of these ideas making sense. Uh, you know, Texas, you always think about, okay, big spaces, everything big. Well, we have a project in Fort Worth where the developer designed their building around these technologies. They were able to shrink the unit sizes. So if the average studio in Fort Worth is 500 square feet, these Ori studios became 350 square feet. And because they became smaller, they actually became the most affordable studios in the market. So all of a sudden, they were able to market the cheapest, but also the coolest uh, apartments in the market. And that's a very strong proposition. That's why the building list in about a month. So, of course, that's an example of planning early. You can still plan late and still have an impact, like some projects we've done. But to your question, the sooner, the more of an impact you can, you can make. 
and I'm going to ask a really technical question here. Yeah. What's the loading process look like? What are the requirements? Is this something that you can bring up in an elevator if you have an already built yeah. project or do you, okay. So yeah, a, we, a service elevator or some sort of freight should work for that. Yeah. So we, we like to, interestingly enough, like we like to think uh, about our, our solutions uh, from a functionality standpoint, we like to think about them as architecture because they do create rooms, which is what architecture is about, interior architecture. But when it comes to deployment and fulfillment, which is what you are referring to, we like to think about our solutions like furniture, meaning they come post certificate of occupancy, they come flat packed through the elevator, ideally the service elevator, but they also go through a normal elevator, come through the door, they get assembled in the apartment, uh, almost as a piece of furniture at the very, at the very end. How many regions are you guys working in now? Every time I talk to you, it seems like you're in a different part of the globe. Um, where are, have you been installing projects lately? So we are in North America right now. That's our focus. So that would be the US and Canada. Uh, we are in more than 30 cities because, uh, as I referred to the Fort Worth example, what, what we have found out is that, you know, this is not just about New York and San Francisco. Uh, this is also about secondary, tertiary cities that are also having trouble differentiating the multifamily stock or making the performance work. You know, at the end of the day, when you think about yields on cost, uh, it's all about how do we make the formula work in real estate? So the moment you can increase that, that yield through innovation, this is attractive to all types of markets. We're seeing a big, a big push from Canada. You know, Canada uh, traditionally has been more condo driven, but now we're seeing a big resurgence of uh, rentals, uh, whether it's because of uh, you know, regulation or, you know, consumer demand, but we're seeing many projects coming online. That's our focus. Now we do get, uh, hundreds and hundreds of inbound inquiries from international developers. So we are starting to explore that, uh, and thinking about, you know, cities across the, the world, like Tokyo, Seoul, Dubai, that we think could have, a, you know, could be a great market for us but we're not, not ready to announce anything yet uh, on those markets. Right now, mostly focused uh, or exclusively focused in the U.S. and Canada. Oh, interesting. And it, it seems like you have at this stage a variety of products that meet all sorts of different functionality. Are there any that you have been particularly excited about that you've, you've launched that maybe, you know, I guess this could go a couple different ways. Have you developed any products that uh, became a surprise to you and in, in how they were received and used and that you were really excited about? Or there were there some that you developed where you said, hey, this is something we never could have thought of before, but the solution that way we've done it, it has going to have a really meaningful impact um, for, you know, yeah. what we can market. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I don't think we've ever been surprised in the sense that we've taken a very systematic approach to product development in the sense that let's understand the problems and then de design solutions that very clearly tackle those problems. So we found a very clear like mapping between those problems and then the solutions making sense. So I would say, I wouldn't say like, oh, we developed this thing. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then it was a success. That's not what we've seen. Now, uh, when it comes to, you know, favorite products or products that probably make uh, the most difference, uh, our, our listeners cannot see it. But right now I'm actually uh, in my home office and in my background, I have this space that looks like a perfectly good you know home office but you can probably already see there's a uh, or you know like th there's actually a bed in the ceiling that at the press of a button uh drops and this actually is my bedroom so the cloud bed system has become probably our most popular offering because it basically kills the biggest space killer of all 
the biggest space killer of all is the bed. The bed takes a room called the bedroom for 24 hours when you only need it for eight hours, uh, around eight hours a day. So at the press of a button, you know, every morning I go to the bathroom, press the button, and by the time I'm back from the bathroom, my, my room is completely different. It's not a bedroom anymore. So that's become probably our, you know, most you know, prominent solution. But then we realize there's no one size fits all. So we have a storage office solutions that depending on the market, depending on the building, we combine with solutions like the Cloudbed or we do them on their own. So that's why it's a toolkit. It's like looking at floor plans, looking at small spaces and thinking about what does this space need from a design standpoint, but also from a financial performance standpoint. Like how can we make this space better in a way that helps the resident, but also the developer economics. So if a developer is coming to you with a floor plan, are you creating solutions to tailor to those spaces? Or are some of these products more off the shelf? They have, you know, set dimensions, they're modular and they fit in a certain context. Or do you do, you do both? They're, they're pretty off the shelf, the solutions that we have, because at the end of the day, the needs regarding rooms are pretty universal. Like when you think about rooms, it's about you know, a place where you sleep, a place where you work, a place where you entertain. So then we, we create a bunch of solutions that go from room to room. So whether it's a cloud bed that takes you from living room to bedroom, or it's a pocket closet that takes you from closet to office. Like we kind of have this, um, you know, com, com, how do you say, uh, transformations on co or conversions that depending on the floor plans, which tend to be pre-standardized when it comes to multifamily. You look at your studios, your one bedrooms and your two bedrooms, they tend to be a very standard uh, type of design. So then depending on the apartment, we would apply one or the other. Uh, so that's, that's how we like to do it. We don't like to do too much custom stuff with developers because at the end of the day, if we were to create a lot of customization, then one resident might want one thing, but then the next resident might want something completely different. So we want these solutions to somehow blend in into the architecture of the apartment, the same way a kitchen or a bathroom tends to blend in and then allow residents to customize with their own things, you know, with their own knickknacks and their coffee tables and their rugs and their paintings. That's for the resident to do. Our system is more staying at a, you know, again, uh, integrated, you know, uh, solution that is just part of the walls, part of the of what an apartment brings to the resident. And it sounds like you've been primarily focusing on residential type projects. Has there been any interest or discussion in expanding that to other market product types? Yeah, so our beachhead market, uh, where we really focused initially, as you very well said, it's residential, your new construction projects. Now, uh, there's a lot of potential for growth from there. The first example is, you know, one and two bedroom apartments. Uh, we've done some of that in the past, but we mostly have that in studios. But the reality is that one and two bedroom apartments are also becoming smaller and smaller. So anybody, everybody could use uh, a bit of expansion and a bit of expandability in those spaces. That's one example, still in multifamily. Uh, another example is hospitality. Uh, we actually partnered uh, with the biggest, uh, you know, hospitality company in the world, biggest hotel brand in the world, which is Marriott International. Uh, and we actually have been piloting with them. Uh, we've been in a bunch of hotels last year, uh, at least six hotels. And what we've been doing is we've been learning. We had, you know, more than uh, 2,000 nights, more than 1,000 guests, and we've been learning uh, about how people use this system. So now we can think about, about how to scale that type of a, of a pilot. Hopefully we'll be announcing something soon. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's really exciting.
Um, so that that's incredible. Uh, you know, it's it's such an interesting approach to solving these problems and really providing meaningful solutions that add a lot of value to the, the clients you work with. I want to um, step back to sort of the the academic side a little bit here. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, after having the experience that you had going through MIT and all this research that you've done and um, all the, the inspiration that you've probably gotten along the way, if you want to speak to that a little bit more, you know, in talking about cities, in talking about solving problems, what are some things that you look out into the market and say that you find really inspiring or that gets you really excited as well as what you're doing and what you're seeing? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to inspiration, I try to study the past a little bit to see kind of what other innovations had to go through some of the same, you know, challenges and, and winding roads that we had to go through. So I, I do like to read about some of those stories. And probably the biggest inspiration when it comes to what we do comes from a story that I find fascinating, and that's the story of the elevator. Uh, when you think about elevators, uh, modern elevators, you have to go back 150 years to see kind of the, the true advent of that industry because there were elevators before, but they were not safe and they were used just to move goods around. And all of a sudden, there's this guy called Elisha Otis, which in New York City, he demos the first like safety mechanism for elevators. Uh, with a very epic demo where somebody cuts the, the cords of the elevator and the elevator actually stays where it is. And all of a sudden, you know, creates a whole industry. The modern elevator industry, which is an industry that changes real estate forever and changes cities forever. Because all of a sudden, we could densify cities. We could densify cities by going up. And that had a big impact in things like affordability and sustainability. So that was 150 plus years ago. The interesting thing is that Elisha Otis created a company named Otis that is still the market leader of a $100 billion plus industry. Uh, so a lot of inspiration from that. And you don't see it so often an innovation that truly changes the way buildings are built. That's a, that was an example. And I think that's where we get a lot of inspiration to really be what elevators were at that point and still are. How can we create a similar kind of impact in the way cities are designed, in the way buildings are built through space efficiency and densification at an apartment level. So I always like to look at examples like that. Uh, and that's one that you know comes to my mind as an example of history, really giving you lessons of how to think about the future. Do you get to stay in touch frequently with anybody that you had originally worked with at the MIT Media Lab? I mean, absolutely. Uh, honestly, it's probably the most fun place I've ever been uh, into. So every time I'm in the Boston area, I like to, you know, drop by and, and see that magical place because there's so much innovation uh, going on and, and getting inspired. Probably not as much as I, I wish, but, but always looking at, you know, what's next. Because, you know, as a company, you always have this, of course, long-term vision, but then you're also tied to the short midterm. You're tied to your financials. You're tied to the next year, the next two years. And these places like the MIT Media Lab or MIT in general and all these great research centers across the country, they get the opportunity to be thinking 10 years in advance, you know, 20 years in advance. So it's in my best interest to be kind of taking a peek at, at what they're working on because they, it basically shows you where the world is going and you always want to be thinking uh, with that long-term mindset too. Yeah, I've had the chance to visit a couple times as well. And also to your point, it's just so inspiring and energizing when I go there. 
and uh, so I describe the my observations of it being a mix a cross between a laboratory and almost like an amusement park. Like there's <laughs> such a, such a dynamic place with so many amazing things happening, and it seems like every time you take a corner, there's just some other incredible idea that's being built. Yeah. Um, at this intersection between the media and the science and the research and the creativity is it's just unbelievable. It, it, it's just incredibly inspiring. I always tell this story of a project that truly inspires me from the Media Lab. And I might not tell the story perfectly because it's a very old project, but it's such a great example of serendipity and creativity. It's a project, it might, it might be like a 20, 30 year old project, but it's a project that started as research with Jojo Ma, the cello player thinking about ways to augment the way he was playing the instrument and exploring new ways of, of playing instruments. That research got seen by uh, two visiting researchers at the lab at the time, uh, which were Penn and Teller, no joke, like the magicians, Penn and Teller, that saw that technology and the potential of applying that technology into like a show, you know, like a magical chair type show. And then, I kid you not, uh, there's an executive, you know, from, uh, I think it was NEC or, you know, one of these... Uh, you know, automotive companies, you know, from, from Asia that looked at that technology and he saw the potential of applying that same technology into a passenger detection uh, system in cars. Uh, a system that could tell the airbag when and when not to deploy, for example, when there's like a baby. So something that starts as research, uh, you know, for a cello player ends up saving the lives of kids in a car. To me, that's absolutely fascinating. And that's where the best ideas happen. You know, when you start combining these different disciplines, these different people, and just coming up with ideas for the future. If somebody were interested in learning more about the Media Lab or wanted to apply themselves, what kind of advice would you give them for starting that process? I mean, I would look at the website, which uh, I think it's media at mit.edu, or just Google MIT Media Lab, and, and there's like this all this know-how around the different research groups. Every research group, there's like 25 of them, are like very different, and each of them has a very specific, uh, you know, thesis. So the first thing is to actually find your fit there and do a ton of research and then basically pitch, you know, every year they accept new students, like pitch how your know-how can further the agenda and the thesis of that specific research group. Whether it's around cities, like my research group was, or bionic limbs, or augmented reality or music. There's there's a little bit of room for everything. And if somebody wanted to learn more about Ori and perhaps work from you or work with you, yeah. um, uh, how could what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way is to go to our website, oriliving.com. First of all, the first thing you can find on our website is an apartment listing site, which means that you can find apartments with Ori today. So you can rent or send them to your friends so they can rent them. So you can literally live with these technologies today. And then, you know, when it comes to, you know, positions or opportunities at Ori, either through LinkedIn or WellFound, which used to be AngelList uh, before, that's where we tend to post all our positions. And, and there's sometimes positions around marketing, sometimes positions around engineering. So I really recommend people to check on both LinkedIn and, and, and WellFound. Great. And potential clients, if they wanted to work with you, same thing, visit the website. Yeah. The website has a very clear tab, which is around building with Ori. So the website has the tab for consumers and residents, but then it has a, a tab for developers thinking about building and creating supply of Ori apartments. And we just ask a, you know, a couple of quick questions and then we, we get a person, a specialized 
kind of ORI designer that will walk them through the process, will help them understand how to implement the solutions, how to design their units, uh, and we'll walk them through all that, all that process. That's great. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. You know, just to wrap up here, I, I know you have a call, a very important call coming up shortly. I want to give you time for that. I always like to ask people when they come on, though, because um, I always want to know, you know, the message that you want to deliver and, um, you know, given the, the platform to get your voice out there. If there's anything we missed, what do you like most talking about? What do you, you know, what do you most want to share that we haven't already covered? I think I just like to reemphasize like our mission statement as an organization, like why do we exist? I believe that companies need to be very obstinate about their vision, but then you're know, flexible on the tactics. I don't know whose quote was this, but somebody smart that said it before. And, and for us, it's always been about this idea of let's empower people to live large in a smaller footprint. We cannot keep thinking about, you know, unlimited use of resources. Uh, we are more and more people. There's 200,000 people moving to cities every single day. That's a ton of people. So now we need to think about how can we be smarter about spaces? And that's kind of a bit of our vision. It's not just one company that will do it. We welcome other innovators to really kind of join the challenge and, and start to think about how we can make spaces smarter so they work for us instead of us having to adapt to them. So that is the idea. Empower people to live large in a small footprint and then using technology to make to make these spaces, you know, the coolest, the most affordable for residents, the most, uh, you know, sustainable for the planet, but also the most profitable for developers because developers have to build these things after at the end of the day. So we want to make sure that that profitability is there for them. Yeah, that's awesome and such a great message. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing all the incredible insights into the work that you've been doing and the lessons you've been learning and for the aspirations that you guys have. I'm really excited to see how it continues to grow and learn more about your products as well. So uh, again, just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing that. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.